About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put your sandals, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the Hannah Herod and from all that, that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying to her, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, he saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the other brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Hey, before we uh, jump into Acts chapter 12, uh, I need to clean something up. I, Tuesday, I was on my way to the airport to pick up my sister from the airport uh, and have her here for a visit. And I listened to my sermon from a couple of weeks ago. And I thank you for all the comments. Wow, I got a ton, maybe the most from anything I have preached in the time I've been here. And uh, so I went back and listened to it. And it clearly hit, and hit on a lot of nerves and, and some things that were heavy on your hearts. But as I listened to it, I realized I said something that came across in a way that I did not intend. Uh, At one point in the sermon, I said something that insinuated that the brothers who have written overtures over the last couple of years uh, uh, to our General Assembly addressing their concerns about same-sex attraction and, and elders within the PCA, and it came across as if I was calling them homophobic. And that was not my intention. Uh, I did not mean to say it like that. Uh, in that statement, I was referring to various comments and actions and attitudes and emotions that I have observed and heard in the debate of those overtures in various discussion groups and in forums. And while many of my fellow elders across the country have engaged in very thoughtful and godly dialogue, uh, even when we 
might disagree with one another. Uh, others have not, and it's in those occasions that have not that I was referring in that statement. But the way it came out, uh, I was I realized I unintentionally slandered uh, some of my brothers who wrote those overtures, and I needed to clean that up so that uh, I didn't communicate something that I did not intend to communicate. So, now, with that being said, let's jump into Acts chapter 12, and let me begin um, by kind of referring to something I saw recently. There was a shooting out west. A couple of people were, were murdered, you know, in one of those tragic public, you know, uh, mass shootings. And the sheriff, when he announced it uh, to the public, in the announcement, he said uh, something along the lines of, and you've heard this in other situations, that... Uh, you know, the, the, the thoughts and the prayers of our department go out to the families of the victims. You've, you've heard those kinds of things before that were said. Well, it was interesting in the wake of that tragedy, uh, I noticed that there were several comments made by different pontificators and celebrities and news people, and, and it particularly showed up in social media where they, they kind of erupted over that statement. And in fact, one of them basically said something along the lines of, spare me your thoughts and prayers, give me better gun control instead, right? Uh, one of the commentators uh, mocked uh, Christians for praying in situations like this and said, you run to your invisible man in the sky whenever something bad happens instead of getting your hands dirty and doing something about it. Uh, which is kind of interesting that that was the response because when you look at Americans in general in our nation, uh, almost half of all Americans when surveyed will say that they pray on a daily basis. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans uh, claim to pray at least once a week, most more than once a week. So the majority of Americans clearly believe in prayer and the power of prayer, and yet there is those growing number of people in our population that seem to doubt it. This isn't something new. Charles Spurgeon, back in his day, was uh, mocked and scorned by one day, he was confronted by a man who was more of an agnostic and atheist, and he, he was laughed at for praying and, and claiming the power of prayer. And so when confronted, Spurgeon responded to him in this way, he said, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe, that it has a more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any other of those secret forces which men have called by name, but which they do not understand. I appreciate that. Because to this day, I really don't understand electricity, yet I know it's powerful and that it exists, right? I don't understand gravity or love, and yet we all know the power of love, even though we can't necessarily qualify it, quantify it in a scientific way, we know that it exists. And that's what Spurgeon was getting at in our passage this morning. Our passage is a vivid reminder that where supernatural prayer takes place, God's supernatural power for the benefit of his people and the glory of his name will often be exemplified. And this is what we have here. As we come to chapter 12, the church in Jerusalem is in turmoil. They have come to a season of peace and it has expanded and the you know, persecutions of Saul and all of that has gone away and, and the church has thrived. But now their trauma has been introduced and their, their leader has been killed and they don't know what to do. And, it, and the wake of this and in this chapter and in this event, the, God speaks to us today. 
There's a couple of very important gospel applications for us. Let's begin in the first five, five verses and see that it, God's people often find themselves in circumstances that create anxiety, uncertainty, and fear. These opening verses give us this very simple but important reminder that this will regularly occur in our lives. There will be seasons of prosperity and blessing and peace and calm, and then out, sometimes out of nowhere, bam. And this is what happens to the church in Jerusalem. Herod uh, arrests James. The, the Herod here is not Herod the Great when Jesus was born, and it wasn't Herod Antipas who crucified Jesus. This is Herod Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod uh, the Great, the, the nephew of Herod Antipas. Uh, he, he had an up and down young uh, childhood. As a young man, he spent a lot of time in Rome and he became friends with some other young men at court, uh, guys by the name of Caligula and Claudius. If you know anything of ancient history, those two guys later become Caesars themselves. And that was much to the benefit of Agrippa. When they come to power, they help uh, Agrippa. They expand his place within Jewish society as the king. And his property and his authority and power. But he was never really liked by the Jewish people, as were Herod the Great or Antipas. They, neither of them were liked either because they weren't Jewish. They were Edomites. And so the Jews disliked them just like they disliked the Romans. And so uh, Agrippa attempted to kind of gain favor with the Jews in order to, to, for them to like him more and to you know, keep the peace and calm for the kingdom. So he would go to the festivals and participate in the feast in a very ostentatious way, like, you know, kind of saying, you know, hey, I'm one of you guys, right? Well, then he, when he realized that the Sanhedrin did not care for Christianity, he turned around and he arrested James. This is the James of, you know, Peter, James, and John, the, the inner three of Jesus's circle. This is the James who wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus and the kingdom. Remember that story? And Jesus turned to him and said, it's not my place to give you that seat, but here's what I can promise you. You too will drink from the cup of suffering as I have, will drink, which is what happens in these verses. James is arrested and he is beheaded with the sword, indicating that he was charged with heresy. When, when Agrippa sees how the Jewish leaders love this and how the, the, the more orthodox Jewish people are in favor of this, he doubles down. He goes after Peter, the main spokesman, the main apostle, and he arrests him and he intends to try him and execute him for the exact same charge on the exact same charges. The only thing that, that saves Peter's life up to this point is that it is the time of Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And, and so by Jewish law, you can't conduct a trial and an execution during that season of the year. This is why Jesus's trial was rushed and why Jesus's trial in part was illegal by Jewish law. They violated that principle. And so Herod waits for that season. And also, he's a canny politician, right? The longer you wait and you allow that festival to conclude, the larger the crowd is in the city of Jerusalem. The more pilgrims will have come for that festival. The city will be full. He can do the trial off with his head. You know, it will be over all of social media instantly, and everyone will know what a great guy Agrippa is. 
but he's not a dummy. He understands these guys have been arrested before. On two different occasions, apostles have been arrested, and when they've gone to go grab them, they're not in jail. So this time, he's got a strategy. Instead of there being a couple of guards, one in the cell with Peter and one outside the cell guarding the door, he puts two soldiers in the cell and he chains them to Peter and two outside the cell door to guard. And then they rotate every three hours, this team of 16 soldiers to ensure that Peter does not escape on this occasion. This is the background. This is what's going on in these chapters as Peter is now in prison. Now put yourself in the shoes of the Jerusalem church. How do you think they feel with all this going on? They've had a time of calm. And now two of the top three apostles are either dead or about to be dead. And and, and realize that in the past persecutions, the apostles have been hands off. They've been left alone. When others had to scatter, like we looked at with Saul and those persecutions, the apostles were left alone in Jerusalem. They were able to continue doing ministry and lead the church. They were like, you know, protected. Now, if the leaders aren't being protected, what does that indicate for the rest of the church, right? What's coming for the rest of the church? This has got to be going through their minds that, uh uh-oh, we thought it was bad before. What's it gonna be like now? And so you, you, you gotta understand, these guys have, are feeling afraid. There's anxiety there. There's concern and fear and despondency. James is dead. James, one of the sons of thunder, is dead. And Peter is about to be dead. Who's next? It's interesting, many years later, Peter will write to Christians who are also being persecuted. They're being scattered, and by a different Roman empire, they're facing the sword. And to those Christians, he will quote from the book of Psalms. He will say to them, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I can't help but wonder if when he was writing those words to those Christians, if he did not reflect back to this time in his life and draw encouragement from it in order to give it to them and to us because the reality of life is we will go through seasons of calm and blessing and then all of a sudden we will experience circumstances where our world is turned upside down and it will create fear and anxiety and worry and it can come when we least expect it. It can come from arenas of life that we never imagined it would occur. I mean, you think about it, just a few weeks ago, we had brothers and sisters in Ukraine who were going about their life, enjoying life as just normal human beings would, as fathers, mothers, husbands, and wives, and now some of them have died or they've seen family members die and they're hiding and huddling in subways even now. Imagine what's going on in their hearts and their minds right now. And Peter's word to them this morning and his words to us is, God sees what's going on in our lives. He is not turning a blind eye to what's happening in our lives, whether it is simply the natural consequences of the fact that we live in a fallen world or 
If it's the consequences of abuse and sin and a persecution that may be coming at the hands of another person, we can be confident that God sees it all. His eyes are upon the lives of his children. And most importantly, his ears are turned to us, waiting to hear our what? Prayers. Our prayers. He's waiting to hear our prayers. And that leads us to the second and most important gospel application, our takeaway truth for this morning. At these kinds of times, we are encouraged by this passage. Earnest intercessory prayer is the first and the greatest weapon that God has given us in our arsenal. It's the first and greatest offensive weapon in the arsenal of God's people. You look at this story on the one side, you have Herod Agrippa with all the might and the authority of the Roman Empire. He has the power of the sword of life and death. And on the other side, you have the people of God who at this moment, no doubt, are anxious and afraid and concerned and confused and bewildered. You know, you've, you've heard it said oftentimes, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword, right? But church, in this passage this morning, God is telling us, no, 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 no. It's prayer that is mightier than the sword. That's what he's telling us in this passage. As Warren Wearsby wrote many years ago, God works when churches pray and Satan still trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. I love verse five. Verse five says Peter is in prison and in the second half of that verse, but, important word, right? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnest comes from the Greek word ektenos. It means fervent, without ceasing, constant, intense, perseveringly. It's a word that Luke likes. He's used it before. In fact, if you go back to the gospel of Luke, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus contemplated what was before him, and he knew what was about to happen as he would go before the Herod and before the Sanhedrin and he would be tried and he would be tortured and he knew that he would go to the cross and he would be hung there and crucified and that he would pour out his blood and that he would die in order for us to be reconciled to our creator, that he would die a very hard, painful, cruel death in order for our sins to be atoned for. As he contemplated that, he was filled with agony. He was tortured in his soul as he should have been. And so what did he do? He turned to those three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he said, guys, come with me, pray with me. In his hour of agony, Jesus turned and he asked those three men to engage in earnest intercessory prayer. He needed to be prayed for. And he turns to them and says, pray with me in this hour that I can stand with the, underneath the trial that is required in order for the sins of my people to be forgiven. And Luke writes 
during that time of prayer when Jesus, being in agony, he prayed more, what's our word? Earnestly. Ekonos, there it is. Fervently, so much that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the church, and they're praying like this for Peter because they don't have the power of the sword. They had the power of prayer. And what you see in this passage is that God answers the prayer of his people in a most remarkable way. Verse six, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly and the chains fell off his hands. And the rest of this passage is really kind of interesting. I think those of us, if you've ever dressed a toddler, when you're in a hurry, this scene kind of looks familiar, right? I mean, you know, first of all, you know, he has to, you know, kick him to wake him up, you know, and then he's like, okay, Peter, you know, get your clothes on, let's go. And then, you know, get your sandals on, you know, other foot, I'm sure, you know. <laughs> and then it was like, Peter, put your coat on, it's cold outside, you know, so he's forgetting his coat, right? I mean, isn't this the way it happens with your little ones, guys? You know, it's like, you always have, no, 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 Peter, follow me, follow me. And, and then so Peter starts following, and it's the neatest thing, you know, the doors just like open without anything touching him. And, and this amazing story here. And it's so amazing that Peter just thinks he's dreaming. He, all the way out of the prison, he goes down the street and then finally the angel just disappears. Peter's just astounded, you know? We probably, we, we probably should cut Peter some slack here though. I mean, if you think about this story for just a moment, it really does say something about the depth of the spirituality of Peter. I mean, you think about it, he is facing death the next day, chained between two guards, and he is sawing logs. He's sleeping so deeply that the light of the angel isn't enough to wake him up, right? I mean, a little light through my window at six wakes me up. This is the brilliance of an angel, and Peter doesn't wake up. He has to be kicked in the side to wake up. This guy is sleeping so soundly. He is clearly not worried about what seems to be his impending death. And that, that made me pause. How is that possible? How is it possible to be in that situation and to be so apparently at peace? How's that, how's that able? I, you know, as I thought about it, I, I, I said, you know, we have another prison scene in the book of Acts with, with Paul. And what you see with Paul and the Philippian jailer, and Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer, you see that when they're in prison, chained, you know, they're praying. And then they're worshiping God. I, I got to believe that as Peter is facing this, he's, he's praying and he's worshiping God. And at some point... I, I just, I'm going to ask him, this is conjecture, 
right? I just want to be clear. You know, I'm, I'm just looking at this thing. And how does that, at some point, the Holy Spirit, maybe the Holy Spirit reminded him, hey, hey, Peter, remember, Jesus said, you're going to die as an old man stretched out on the cross like he was stretched out on the cross. Don't forget, Jesus told you that's how you're going to die. So you are not going to die by the sword tomorrow. Something else is going to happen, but it's not going to be by the sword like James, okay? And, and so somehow, Peter is just, he's at peace with what's happening. Church, there, there's something important there. It's, it's amazing how prayer changes us even before it changes our circumstances, how often when we are in situations of fear, anxiety, worry, whatever it is, and many times these are legitimate circumstances. Things are happening in our lives that, are, that, that they should upset us. They should cause consternation and bewilderment and, and deep emotions as we see maybe what's happening in our world or what is happening in our lives or in our family or to our children. And it should cause great deep and concern and angst in our soul. And we pray and we want it worked out a certain way. And it's interesting. I rarely find that God works it out the way that I pray for it to be worked out. He does it differently. But the, the important aspect of prayer here, at least at the individual level, is that it changes us between the point of prayer and the point of whatever the ultimate resolution is. And it prepares us for that resolution. And it brings us to a place of peace where we can trust God so that whatever that resolution is, we are okay with it. And we trust in the sovereign goodness and grace of our heavenly father. So the prayer not only activates God and his power in the world, it does something for us, changing us and preparing us. Now the important question in this passage I think for all of us to consider, does God still work like this today? Is this passage, as we've asked oftentimes in the book of Acts, because it's a book of transitions, as we are a church in transition, is, is what happening here, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it a one-off type of thing that was for the apostles and for the early church? Or is it something that we should look at and say, no, this is something that we should expect to see God do in our church today. And I think when you look at this passage, we should read it in a, and, and conclude that this, this is prescriptive. This is for all of us, not just the church there in Jerusalem, and I believe this for several biblical reasons, that we can be confident that this passage is given to us to encourage us to engage in this same kind of earnest intercessory prayer and expect God to see him work in unforeseen, unimaginable, powerful ways. And, and there's several reasons why this is the case. First of all, the Bible teaches us that God sends his angels to assist us even though we may rarely recognize it. Just as he did for Peter, God does the same thing for us. Listen, if this was the only passage in the Bible where an angel shows up and helps a dude in trouble, 
I would say, eh, that, maybe, that might just be descriptive and we should, but that's not what the scriptures teach us. You see this throughout the scriptures and then you come to a passage like Hebrews 1 where it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Or Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. When we pray and we intercede on the behalf of others or for ourselves, it is within the tool belt of God to send angels to meet that request and to meet the need, whatever it may be. And that is what he did here. And that is what he says he can do for us. A second reason why, I think this is a descriptive passage or prescriptive passage that we should expect to see in the same way is that we need this angelic help just as much as they did because we are engaged in the same war that they fought living in the same fallen world that they lived in. We're in the same fallen world, same spiritual warfare. We have the same weapons, need the same assistance that they needed. It hasn't lessened one bit. You know, if you go to Ephesians chapter six, the apostle Paul tells us, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not, we, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is so important, church. Did you catch that? Of all people, excuse me, of all people, the apostle Paul doesn't say here, for we do not wrestle against that horrible political leader, Caesar, who's killing us. For, For we do not wrestle against Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or the premier of China. We do not wrestle against the political party in Congress that's dominant. That is not our enemy. Those are people who need to be saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the people that we're supposed to love and pray for, that they would come to salvation. What we have to recognize in our world is that our enemy is not the people of the other side that we don't agree with. Our enemy are the spiritual forces behind all of the political parties at play in this war, in this world, and the cultural influencers in our world. It's the spiritual forces behind these individuals. That's who we're at war with. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This passage is important to us in Acts 12 because we have the exact same enemy they had. Their enemy was not Agrippa. It was Satan and the dark forces of this unseen realm who hate Christ and his people. And that force is still present today. And that's why earnest intercessory prayer is so important. Because with earnest intercessory prayer, God gives every 
one of us the opportunity to join him in his kingdom work for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the good of our brother and sister in Christ. You know, as Paul continues in Ephesians chapter six, and many of you are familiar with the passage, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness and your feet being shod in the truth and the shield of faith and in the sword of the spirit and all that. But the climax of that passage about spiritual warfare The climax of the passage is prayer. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Does that not sound like earnest, intercessory prayer? I mean, that's exactly what that is. That's ektenos spelled out in in two verses. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador. Paul says, I need you to pray for me. And the great thing about prayer being this most important weapon, the first weapon in this spiritual warfare, it's not all of us are able to wield the the sword of the truth the same way. Not all of us can proclaim it. Not all of us have the gift of mercy and encouragement. Not all of us are as evangelistic as others and have the ability to advance. Not all of us can defend the faith like others can be. We all have different gifts, but here's the great thing. We can all pray. And the neat thing is, is you can pray when you're 20 and you can pray with your 80 and not able to get around like you used to be when you're 20 and everything in between. And as you get older, you can actually be a better prayer as you get older than you were when you're younger. It's the one of the few things in a spiritual life that gets better with age. <laughs> prayer, how about that? How about that? Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, wrote a book called uh, All Things for Good. It was an exposition on Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. And he, he pointed back to this story with Peter and the angel at a critical point as an example. And, and in that illustration, a sentence came, it's passed down, it's a great sentence. It's the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Isn't that awesome? What an awesome sentence, it's a great quote. But it's worth mentioning that Watson was actually making a larger point about earnest intercessory prayer. And this is what he said. He said, the prayers of saints work for good to the godly. The saints pray for the forgiveness of sins. The saints pray for all the members of the body mystical. Their prayers prevail much. They prevail for the forgiveness of sins. They prevail for recovery from sickness. They prevail for victory over enemies. They prevail for deliverance out of prison. The angels fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer fetched the angel. Thus the prayers of the saints work for good to the body mystical. And this is no small privilege to a child of God, that he has a constant trade of prayer driven for him. Here's Watson's point. His point is that all of us are where we are today because God has been honoring the prayers of people who we didn't even know were praying for us. 
that we all have people praying. Right now, Ukrainian Christians hiding in the subway systems have Christians around the world praying for them, and they don't even know it, right? And God is protecting them because he's honoring the prayers of people they don't even know are praying for them. And the same is true in your life right now. You are and I am where I am right now and you are where you are right now because God has honored the earnest intercessory prayers of people that you didn't know who were even praying for you. And he promises to do the same thing through our prayers. So we pray for those Ukrainian Christians and we pray for the Chinese pastors in prison persecuted by their godless government. And we pray for the Nigerian Christians who are hunted by Boko Haram, whose daughters are sold into the sex slave trade. And we pray for our government leaders, regardless of the party affiliation. And most importantly, we pray for that lost friend, that lost family member, and that lost neighbor who one day we believe is gonna come to Christ and they're never gonna know that one of the reasons why they trust in Jesus Christ is that God honors that earnest intercessory prayer. And why does he do that? Because this passage is prescriptive. It's teaching us that this is the first, the greatest, the most powerful weapon in our arsenal in this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Heavenly Father, may we wield this weapon well. May we use it often. May we see no circumstance, no event as being too small to pray for. And Lord Jesus, give us hearts that reject self-reliance, that are humbly dependent upon you, for it's the heart that is humbly dependent upon you that sees earnest prayer as being the first priority. So Lord, do a work in our hearts because for many of us whose prayer life maybe is more shallow and more inconsistent, and we recognize this, the, the underlying sin is that we are often beset with pride and self-reliance. And Father, just as you had to break that pride and self-reliance so that we could come into the family of God, continue to break that pride and humble us and help us to see our dependence upon you. And may that be expressed in earnest intercessory prayer. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.